This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. New developments now in the wake of a Colorado Public Radio investigation with NPR. We reported that the U.S. Army has kicked out tens of thousands of soldiers and taken away their benefits. That's after they came back from the wars with mental health problems or traumatic brain injuries. They were then accused of misconduct. Our investigation began at Fort Carson near Colorado Springs, and as a result, the Army promised a probe to see if soldiers were being pushed out unfairly. But we've since learned the Army continues to kick out troubled combat soldiers, even as they look into the practice. Now several U.S. senators are calling on the Army to stop. CPR's Michael DeYuana co-reported with NPR's Daniels Wordling, who has our story. Everybody we talked to said the Army needs to kick out soldiers who misbehave when they behave badly. And it's clearly the soldier's own fault. But after our report, a dozen Democratic senators protested to the Army. They said combat soldiers with mental health problems and brain injuries need help, not punishment. So the acting head of the Army appointed one of its top officials to lead an investigation. Is the Army kicking out combat troops who have mental health and brain injuries unfairly? The official's name is Deborah Wada. And exactly two weeks after she was named, Wada signed a document ordering commanders to kick out a highly decorated combat soldier who's been diagnosed with chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, it's puzzling and troubling. David Sonnenschein used to be an Army prosecutor. Now he's with the National Veterans Legal Services Program. He says it's troubling that the very official who's investigating how the Army kicks out soldiers with mental health problems signs some of the orders to kick them out. It definitely paints somewhat of a picture that the investigation may not be fair or objective. The soldier Wada ordered to be kicked out is Sergeant First Class Larry Morrison. We profiled him in our original story. He seems like the kind of soldier that senators say the Army should help, not punish. Morrison has served more than 20 years. He fought four tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Army awarded him a Bronze Star. Then Morrison came home to Fort Carson in Colorado. He pleaded guilty to drunken and reckless driving. And Army officials alleged that he joined a criminal motorcycle gang. Morrison denies it. Now that the Army's going to kick him out, he won't be able to get free medical care, even though they've diagnosed him with chronic PTSD. Now they want to put me out with no benefits. They want to give me a other than honorable discharge so I can't get a job. I can't go to school and take my 20-year retirement away. So they want to put me on the streets with nothing. When senators heard that the Army is still kicking out soldiers like Larry Morrison, some of them said, stop. The Army needs to, to halt the discharge process. What it does, it stops any kind of wrongdoing from going forward. That's Senator John Tester of Montana. Here's Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. It seems to me to be common sense that the Army would impose a moratorium on taking disciplinary actions against soldiers while they undergo this review. Senator Barbara Boxer of California supports a temporary moratorium. So does Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. If something is concerning enough to investigate, common sense says that you wait until the results of that investigation before you take further actions. And I think that's just garden variety fairness. We asked to talk with the Army official who's leading its investigation. An Army spokeswoman answered, the review is ongoing, so it would be premature for us to comment. Meanwhile, Larry Morrison just got his final orders. The Army will kick him out on Thursday. Daniel Zwerdling, NPR News.
CPR's Michael DeYuana co-reported this story with NPR's Daniel Zwerdling, and he joins us now. Welcome, Michael. Howdy. So your reporting all began at Fort Carson near Colorado Springs more than a year ago, and your stories began airing last October. You and Daniel looked at the Army's treatment of several soldiers there who went to war. They came back with mental health problems or brain injuries. Commanders had either kicked them out or were threatening to kick them out for misconduct. But as you two reported, there's the spirit of a law that says soldiers should be given more intensive treatment instead. Yes. uh, The idea is that a soldier's behavioral problems might be caused by their war injuries. So the law essentially says, cut them some slack and get them some treatment. Here's the thing. Treatment could put soldiers on the sidelines and may result in them leaving the army and getting disability pay and long-term health benefits. That's expensive. Mm. And sources in and outside Fort Carson have told us that that's a possible motivation for kicking the ones out who get into trouble. And you also previously reported that 22,000 combat soldiers across the country have been discharged under these circumstances. Right. And that's only since 2009. The Army couldn't give us numbers going all the way back to the start of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So this moratorium idea is really about those soldiers who are still in and facing a discharge. Guys like Larry Morrison, who you just heard about in our story, These senators are basically saying, hey, Army, since there are questions about how these soldiers are being discharged, why not hold off until you know the results of your own investigation? The senators named in your story are among the 12 who initially called for the Army to look into all of this. A response to your first story, Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado also signed the letter. Is he backing calls for this moratorium? No. Uh, he worries a moratorium might complicate the Army's day-to-day operations. Bennett's spokesman, Adam Bosey, told me that the Army needs to be able to make decisions on who to discharge and when. And a moratorium might have unintended consequences. Bennett wants more information, including how Army leaders will approach their investigation. They're going to be looking forward and determining if there's policy changes they need to make, if if there's recommendations, if there's steps Congress needs to take, if there's actions they can take internally. We want to make sure all of that is part of their process. Michael, Bennett and all the senators sounding off on this are Democrats. What about Colorado's other senator, Republican Cory Gardner? First, Gardner wasn't one of the 12 senators on that letter to the Army. I have reached out several times to his office to try to bring Gardner up to speed on all of this. His spokesman never got back to me regarding whether Gardner supports calls for a moratorium. Well, the Army decides how it will respond. What else is happening here? There's definitely a close eye on the Army's investigators right now. And Senator John Tester of Montana wants to see the Army's investigation on his desk in a month. Bennett's office would be happy if it came by summer. This is no solace to soldiers who claim they're getting wrongly kicked out. Those who are kicked out are left to petition the Department of Veterans Affairs for long-term care if they are, in fact, disabled or... Uh, They could petition what's called the Army Review Boards Agency. Hmm. Experts say that that's an arduous process. Or there could be a third way. Bennett spokesman Adam Bosey suggested perhaps a special process for the tens of thousands of soldiers out there to get a second chance. Service members who are unfairly separated should have a clear path to appeal. They should have a clear path 
this adjustment of the discharge status. So what's the reaction to all this from soldiers' advocates? I spoke with the Uniformed Services Justice and Advocacy Group in Denver for many, many years now. They have been at the center of these kinds of cases. The CEO of the nonprofit, Andrew Pagani, applauded senators who are calling for a moratorium. Pagani says soldiers like Larry Morrison, who is in our story, struggle when the Army leaves them without access to long-term care for their injuries. An individual like him is put on the path to catastrophic outcome. And catastrophic outcome ranges anywhere from homelessness to suicide to incarceration in the criminal justice system. But moratorium on this issue is, is critical, is a must, to prevent any further wrongful and inappropriate discharges. Pagani reiterated his desire to see some kind of truth commission independent of the military created. That's because tens of thousands of combat veterans across the country are likely affected. And you can get up to speed on all of Michael's and NPR's Daniels Wordling's reporting on this ongoing investigation into the Army's care of wounded combat troops at CPRnews.org. Michael, thanks. You're welcome. CPR's Michael DeYuana is investigating the Army's treatment of wounded soldiers returning from war in a collaboration with NPR News. Still ahead, what to do with I-70 in North Denver? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. One of the biggest transportation projects in state history could get the green light soon. Interstate 70 will be overhauled through North Denver. It's a project 13 years in the making and will disrupt one of Denver's lowest income neighborhoods. A series of public hearings on the project began last night. Colorado Public Radio's Ben Marcus reports. Bruce Medina has lived in the Ilaria Swansea neighborhood for more than a decade. About four blocks from where he's walking his dog stands the I-70 viaduct, an elevated section of the freeway that cuts through the neighborhood. The plan is to lower the freeway below street level so the viaduct can be torn down. Sounds interesting, you know. I don't, you know, not really an opinion. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing it, though, because it can't hurt what we see now. <laughs> Everything's tagged. Everything's crumbling. Lillian Marsh lives two blocks closer to the viaduct. She's also not sentimental about losing her view of the freeway. It could be gone, and so that's an exciting part about it. Like, I'm excited for the transformation um, of the aesthetic of the neighborhood. With the viaduct right there, it's, it's not very appealing. <laughs> She's especially intrigued by the plan to put a four-acre landscaped cover over the freeway to connect the neighborhood. And what we're really doing is reconnecting communities who were divided in the 1960s by, frankly, a a dark and imposing viaduct. That's Rebecca White, a spokeswoman for the Colorado Department of Transportation. The viaduct carries 145,000 cars a day, and CDOT says it's vulnerable to failure within 10 to 15 years. We've poured millions of dollars to keep the structure safe and functioning about 20 years beyond its expected life. Um, But it's really reached the end and needs to be addressed. Traffic growth also needs to be addressed. In 20 years, CDOT estimates that traffic will double along this section of I-70. The plan proposes to eventually add two lanes in both directions to try to ease about 10 hours of daily bumper-to-bumper congestion. And particularly for I-70, where you've got this connector to DIA, you've got the National Western Stock Show, all the development that is coming down the line. Um, we have to get out there and do something or the congestion will grow to 12 plus hours a day. But not everyone is convinced that more lanes will equal less traffic. Danny Katz heads Coperg, an advocacy group. Standing under a portion of the viaduct, he argues that widening the freeway will simply be a waste of money. Long-standing research shows that when you widen highways, it doesn't necessarily solve congestion. 
And Denver City Councilwoman Deborah Ortega isn't sold on the project either. She's primarily concerned about how five years of intense construction will impact the impoverished and largely Hispanic neighborhood. How do we ensure that those neighborhoods who have borne the brunt of that project, you know, since its existence, will not be further denigrated than what they've already been? For instance, she wants to see air quality monitoring before, during, and after construction. Lillian Marsh, standing in her doorway, the roar of I-70 in the background, admits she's also concerned about a half decade of construction. I am. Once once it starts happening, it will be two doors down for me. She says she'll closely track the project's progress. It still needs federal approval. If everything goes as planned, construction could begin next year. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Well, let's dig a little deeper now into this billion-dollar-plus project. Joining me now in the studio is Rebecca White, who you just heard. She's a spokeswoman for CDOT's I-70 East project. Also joining me is David Sachs, the editor of the transportation website Streets Blog Denver. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So, Rebecca, let's start with you. Um, Everyone seems to agree that the two-mile-long viaduct portion needs to be replaced. It's old and falling apart, but why add more lanes? Well, actually, we have um, two problems we're facing out there in that corridor. One is the viaduct built in 1964. Uh, We've spent, you know, millions of dollars keeping that structure safe and functioning, um, but it really needs to be addressed. And the second problem we face is one of congestion. We've got, you know, upwards of 200,000 cars coming along I-70 every day, and about 10 hours of the day we're in bumper-to-bumper traffic. So CDOT's been um, in the study process for many years trying to find a solution to both those problems. And according to CDOT, 40 to 50 percent population growth is expected statewide over the next 20 years. Of course, much of that in in Denver. Um, How uh, are these lanes going to be general purpose lanes? You just widening to widen. Explain what what those are. No, these lanes are going to be um, express lanes. So that's we're um, taking this approach across the metro area. And we've you know, we've learned in the past that um, just building our way out of congestion is not a sustainable solution. So when we add new capacity now, we look at adding it as an express lane, which allows us to encourage carpooling, um, to accommodate future transit service, and and importantly, always give people the choice of, of a congestion-free trip, no matter how much Colorado continues to grow. And these are like the express lanes on US 36 between Denver and Boulder, correct? And correct, also and I-25. I-7, I-25. Yeah. yeah. Uh, David, what's wrong with adding more lanes then? Sure. Um, adding more lanes, uh, as Danny Katz said from uh, Colorado Perg, uh, has a tendency to create more space for traffic rather than um, just mitigate the traffic over a long, sustainable period of time. It will um, maybe maybe mitigate congestion for a little while. And then as we saw on I-25 after the T-Rex project, it'll reach pretty high pre-construction levels. Um, so the idea is simply you make more room for cars, more cars will come. And I think it's maybe a bad idea to think about everyone who's moving to Colorado in terms of one car per person. So talk a little bit about – I've heard this term induced demand. What is that and, and how, how does that affect what you're talking about? Sure. Induced demand is the idea that the more space you make for vehicles, the more vehicles will fill that space. Um, uh, a University of Toronto study um, – has proved this along with sort of just, you know, general general knowledge, uh, you know, from cities across the country uh, and other studies that have been done. I know one organization here is working on one for I-25. And so have you seen this induced demand happening kind of on I-25? Is that what you're saying? Um, I think 
Yes, uh, w- uh, from the T Rex project, uh, I think I twenty five has has been widened, and now there are more cars than there were before. Rebecca, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I do understand the T-Rex project widened some roads, and I'm sitting in traffic more than I, I, I used to, I think. Right, and that's exactly why um, we're taking a little bit of a different approach with this project. We're widening as an express lane, so we can encourage carpooling and keep cars moving through there no matter what. I mean, take a look at our starting point with this interstate. It was designed in the 1950s, built in the 1960s for a population in Colorado of the 1980s. We had about 3 million people in Colorado in the 1980s, and today in 2016, we're sitting at 5.5 million people, and it shows on this corridor. And then when you look at the growth headed down the line, it's not really a matter of whether or not there'll be growth, but how much. David, you know, would you build I, rebuild I-70 but not widen the highway? What are, what are your plans for that? What are your thoughts? Um, I think uh, there is a group looking to reroute I-70, um, turn it into a an urban boulevard and reclaim the original street grid, which um, has been known to have a lot of uh, great effects on uh, local economies, jobs, um, and in cities like New York where the West Side Highway uh, left and, and San Francisco, the Embarcadero, and some other cities across the country, uh, the traffic knew where to go. It's sort of uh, people naturally went on to other streets or they changed their commute habits. They started commuting at different times or they started using other modes of transit, uh, that, transportation like transit. And that group was United North Metro Denver, and they've advocated for tearing down uh, the elevated section of I-70 and, like you said, replacing it with this boulevard. Uh, they released an animated clip uh, that they posted on YouTube. Instead of a grade-separated and widened superhighway dedicated to cars and trucks, a tree-lined, pedestrian-friendly boulevard emerges. Long, broken bicycle pathways are reestablished. Rebecca, I know CDOT has looked at this idea and rejected it as unworkable. Why was it unworkable? Yeah, and so, you know, if there's one advantage to a 13-year study process, we've studied just about every alternative for this corridor. Mm-hmm. And at least a couple different junctures had looked at whether it makes sense um, to relocate I-70. And time and time and ten, again, we've come back to the fact that it simply doesn't. I mean, this this sleepy tree-lined boulevard that... Um, is portrayed, it simply wouldn't exist. We would expect upwards of 75,000 cars a day needing to come through on a bumper-to-bumper you know, stoplight run um, at Grade Boulevard. And that is because, you know, we know a lot about I-70. We've been studying this corridor for a long time. And the traffic is predominantly headed west and south. And that makes sense, right? You have the draw of the mountain communities in downtown Denver. And when you try to ask that much traffic to shift north and east away from its destination, a lot will continue to use the city streets. And it's, it doesn't just get magically absorbed. But what about what what he was saying in terms of the fact this this has happened in other places? They've removed interstates before with successful results. And 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 that we come again to what this this corridor is today. I mean, this is one of the busiest industrial and commercial corridors in the state. We're anchored on one end by the Denver International Airport, which is a huge economic driver. Um, the future growth of the Aerotropolis, which could uh, attract up to thirty thousand jobs, and on the other end by the National Western Center, that's seeking to expand their visitation to two million visitors a year. Between those two points, there's twelve hundred businesses 
businesses located along I-70 today. They employ 22,000 people, including some of the nation's largest freight distribution centers. I mean, this is the corridor where Denver gets its milk and its packages and its pet food with all these large companies that have settled along there. And that freight traffic is projected to grow as well. And of course, you have the A-line that's going between Union Station and Denver that will mitigate some of that traffic. And the Aerotropolis is something that's being built out at DIA, uh, a business expansion. A lot of businesses are moving in that area. Correct. Um, is this pie-in-the-sky thinking? Is this what the project that they're proposing? Is it pie-in-the-sky, the, sky, the uh, it, removing of I-70? Um, I'm not going to call it pie-in-the-sky. I'm going to call it something that um, I would love to see, but that isn't necessarily necessarily likely. And I'm not saying that because I don't think the traffic will go other places um, if we plan for it. Um, And what I mean by that is I still think we're talking in terms of everybody coming to Colorado with a car. And a lot of these projections were made with pre-year 2000 survey data um, during the study. And I think travel travel habits have changed since then. And if we continue to change them by maybe perhaps adding a transit-only lane or something like that on I-70, then people don't feel like they have to move here with cars. So you're saying essentially we're changing the way we drive and there have been studies that have talked about how you know younger generations are leaving the cars and things like that. Is that what you're talking about? I'm saying we're changing the way we drive but also cities and states have the power to build the infrastructure and go through the processes that can um, you know, sort of lure people out of their cars and into other more efficient modes of transportation that help congestion and also help safety. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. My guests are Rebecca White, spokeswoman for CDOT's I-70 East Project, and David Sachs, editor of the transportation website Streaks Blog, Denver. Uh, Rebecca, what do you think about that? Um, well, you know, we absolutely want multimodal corridors uh, in Colorado. And, and you're planning for them. Apparently. Yeah, and, and very fortunate on I-70 that the uh, commuter rail line that RTD is planning will be open in uh, this spring, uh, well in advance of our construction. In fact, we when we started this study in 2003, we were joined with RTD and anticipated uh, working together to bring the improvements at the same time. Just so happens that RTD received funding to move forward with the rail line. Um, they went ahead of us, and, and now we're, we're bringing the improvements we also need to the highway system. Well, let's take a break now. Uh, when we come back, we'll chat about CDOT's plan to put a four-acre cap over part of the below-grade highway. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's get back into our conversation now about the massive I-70 East project taking place in North Denver. My guests are Rebecca White, spokeswoman for CDOT's I-70 East project. Also joining me is David Sachs, editor of the transportation website Streets Blog Denver. I want to talk about CDOT's plan to place that four-acre cap that we built over part of the below-grade highway in the Hilarious Swansea neighborhood. That's just east of the National Western Stock Show Complex. Rebecca, what will that look like? Well, this is just such a transformative feature of this project. So um, when we take down that 50-year-old viaduct, we're going to lower the highway along about a two-mile stretch. And over a portion of that, about 1,000 feet, um, we'd construct a four-acre new public space. It's essentially a park. Um, It can be used for soccer games and basketball, uh, movies, farmer's markets. Um, We're not the only one in the nation to have this idea. In fact, there's about two dozen of these spaces um, built over interstates across the U.S., and they're really successful. I mean, some have really reunited neighborhoods and brought a whole new life into areas. 
Uh, one of those places is uh, Clyde Warren Park in Dallas. They built an inter- uh, over an interstate about the same size as what we're going to have uh, possibly here along I-70. Is that a success story in your eyes? Correct. And it's a it's a cover of, of about the same size. That one is also about four acres. And David, isn't this a much better uh, alternative than what's there now, this viaduct over, over, the, uh, over the neighborhood? Sure. I mean, it, w- it will offer a, a connection to neighborhoods that have been long been, you know, disconnected. Um, so if you t- could just magically take the cap alone, that would be great and place it over the highway. Look, would love to see it. Um, it. In the end, the highway is still wider by two lanes at first and then four lanes eventually. And I think um, that's the issue that I'm most concerned with. And I also want to, you know, point out that you're going to be, you know, digging this highway into the ground, but putting it below grade, removing the viaduct. What about the people living in the neighborhood, Rebecca? Uh, the noise, the dust. Um, I, I hear that they're possibly going to provide air conditioners and, and storm windows for people affected. What's the mitigation going on for these? Sure. Families? Yeah. And, and there's no question this will be a big project. It's likely to last four to five years. Um, so we've been working really closely with the community to identify a series of measures that can make sure people are are sort of protected from the dust and noise during this period. Um, so in addition to a, requiring our contractor to put pollution col- controls on their equipment and not, you know, turn on their uh, construction equipment in the morning to idle, there's also uh, measures we're looking at to provide new storm windows for the homes that are closest to this project and air conditioning units so that folks don't have to open their their windows during the summer. We're also making a number of investments at the Swansea Elementary School to provide them similar protections. So this is forefront on our mind right now. And I, I want to talk to you, David, a bit about the people in the neighborhood. Have you visited with any of the people in the neighborhood and any of you have heard what they're having to say? Um, I've been to public meetings. You know, I haven't gone door to door and visited with people in the neighborhood. But as far as CDOT public meetings, um, been to plenty of those. And there are people for and against it, for sure. And, and do you know if any people that would be relocated because of this? You talked to I know about uh, I think 74 households and businesses are going to be relocated. I'm not sure what the cut is there. And do you have any information on that, uh, Rebecca? Sure. It's about 56 homes and 18 businesses. On your website, denverstreetsblog.org, I've been looking at some of the comments through this. And I actually have people who, who are kind of both ways on this. And, and somebody who lives in the neighborhood says that they like being close to the interstate. They like having the ease of access. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think, you know, it's if she, she or he lives in that neighborhood, of course, it's their prerogative to have their own opinion. Um, I, I think that's that's from just a neighborhood standpoint. And like you mentioned, uh, the neighborhood will bear the brunt of this, um, especially during the construction. But eventually, I think the entire city will be affected uh, by the massive amounts of single occupancy vehicles, um, you know, now having a place to go. Um, and that includes the streets in and around Elyria, Swansea, Globeville. Rebecca, how long is this process going to continue? It's been going on, you said, for 12 to 13 years. Is this just too long? Are people just worn down now because of this? You know, it, it's it's an important process. The whole point of the study we're doing is to give a voice to the people who are most impacted. Um, and that that's taken a while, and we're proud of the work we've done. So we have the final environmental impact statement out now. We have a series of hearings this week. That's the second to last step. 
Um, the final step is a record of decision, which is comes from the federal government, which essentially closes out the study. Mm-hmm. We're expecting that later this year. Um, and then we can move towards construction in 2017. So we're certainly in, in a well-deserved home stretch after many years of work. And let's expand this just outside of the neighborhood. But what about traffic during con- in construction? Major headaches, not just for the people in the neighborhood, but all of the interstate traffic coming through there. Yep. And that's exactly what we'll be looking at next. Um, we're working with a contractor we select to identify the phasing of this project. Um, certainly maintaining access for these neighborhoods and businesses is essential. Um, right now, our starting point is that we're going to maintain three lanes in each direction along I-70 during the construction period to keep traffic moving, as this is such a vital corridor. David, do you think it's too late to stop this project from moving forward? I don't think it's too late. I don't see anything but maybe litigation or the government deciding the study wasn't good enough, the federal government deciding the study wasn't good enough um, from stopping that or delaying it. Um, I think that it's been a very long process um, and just because it's been a very long process, I'm not sure that automatically means that it should you know, pass. I mean, does this represent an outmoded thinking of, of how we work with transportation uh, congestion in our, in our state? I believe it does. I think that Colorado has a chance to lead here. Um, I think that Shaylin Bott, the head of Colorado DOT, is you know, very progressive in a lot of ways in the way he, he talks about things. Um, I asked him during an interview, um, I said, Shaylin, would this, would this still go forward if you were the head of CDOT at the time um, that this began? And he said the process would be the same. He didn't necessarily say, yes, it would go forward, but he did say the process would be the same. Well, take a look at the elements of this project. We're adding new capacity as an express lane so we can encourage carpooling and accommodate transit. We, When we reconstruct this corridor, we can lay the fiber optic line that will enable us to to accommodate connected vehicles or self-driving cars of the future. And we're taking a 60s-era infrastructure down and replacing it with this light-filled cover. I mean, this is very innovative on the part of CDOT and reflects um, a, a huge progress on our part. I'm wondering, though, where the uh, the widening of, of the lanes comes in. Okay, it's a great cover. It's, it's a great... Um, you know, kind of greenwashing, I think, of a project. But, you know, the extra lanes, it's almost like CDOT's writing the writing their script, sort of um, determining our destiny, you know, um, by building the lanes so more cars will come. We're seeking to build a project that increases mobility, safety, and the connectedness of this corridor. And we sam- simply can't do that without addressing the congestion. And, you know, there's a, a Denver Post editorial that I think summed this up very nicely last week. We we know we need to address that viaduct. We know we have to get in there and do that. Um, and it would just make no sense to turn a blind eye to the bumper-to-bumper traffic we see right now. David, I, I want to ask, if not this, then what? If, if the, the, the tree-lined boulevard isn't an option, if, if this is an option, is there a way that, uh, that you can find some consensus here and be okay with the project moving forward? I mean, if not that, then you know, maybe looking into converting uh, existing lanes into managed toll lanes is, is one option, um, which I know CDOT has tried on I-25, I believe, in Longmont, I want to say. Don't call me on that, even though I'm on the radio. Um, but, uh, you know, there is a way to do it. There's a law called Faster in Colorado law that allows it. Now, this is an interstate highway, and it would take federal approval, and it would take a community process, but it's possible. And I think it's something CDOT's looked into before. The other option is, you know, solving bumper-to-bumper traffic. A big way to do that is to 
make some really awesome enhanced transit ways along the corridor. So you think there's still movement that can be made to maybe help bring some of your ideas to the table? I think so, without widening the highway. David, Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. David Sachs is the editor of the transportation website Streets Blog Denver. Rebecca White is the spokeswoman for CDOT's I-70 East Project. There are two more public hearings on the plan tonight in Commerce City and tomorrow in Denver. And, uh, of course, you can also go to CDOT's website to see if those meetings are still on, of course, because of the snow. Coming up, out of 40,000 objects, we asked the curator of Denver's Kirkland Museum to pick three of his favorites. It's like picking a favorite child, but he did it. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The late Denver artist Vance Kirkland used to suspend himself above his canvases to paint. You can see his studio and the series of body straps he climbed into at the Kirkland Museum. It's in the Capitol Hill neighborhood, and it will have to be moved because the Kirkland is getting new digs just a few blocks away. Hugh Grant directs the museum. We will move the original studio which is uh, uh, hopefully will go well. We can only start moving it at 10 in the evening, and we... So meaning you are actually physically moving the building. That is correct. We are going to jack the thing up, put it on a truck, and ship it down the street, uh, the eight blocks, to the site. That would be quite um, the sight to see. I have, I have said I will be the guy running after it with a wheelbarrow, picking up the bricks as they fall off. So <laughs> hopefully not. Grant says the museum will remain open at its current location at 13th and Pearl until May 1st. It will then move and expand to a larger museum in the Golden Triangle. But the Kirkland's collection isn't just limited to the works of its namesake. It also includes 40,000 pieces of fine and decorative art, so sculpture, paintings, as well as furniture and glassware. I asked Grant to pick three pieces that are representative of the entire collection. They're from three different art movements. So from the arts and crafts movement, We have two windows uh, set in our entryway by Frank Lloyd Wright, the very famous American architect. And they're from the famous Darwin Martin House in Buffalo, New York. Uh, This is probably his greatest house, although falling water is more famous. So we have one very tall, thin, uh, narrow window called a Tree of Life window. And the other is a hanging wisteria window, which is more of a moderate triangle. It's 21 inches high. The Tree of Life is 40 inches high. So do they take on a different quality depending on the time of day? Uh, absolutely. And this is why we wanted them in a set in our actual building looking out uh, or looking in, as the case may be. Whether it's uh, the middle of the day or it becomes uh, a twilight, they have this beautiful different quality to them. You see the colors much – they do have some color. They're not the very bright windows that you sometimes see by Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh-huh. Uh, these are very muted colors of uh, gold and greens and uh, ambers and, and a great deal of clear glass as well, which highlights the design of them. Why did you add these particular Frank Lloyd Wright pieces to your collection? What do they embody about the museum? They showed, uh, since we have uh, about 40 works by Frank Lloyd Wright on view, and then we have many more not on view, he did so many uh, disparate things. I mean, he designed houses, of Mm -hmm. course, and and buildings, uh, uh, some great industrial buildings as well. But he designed to go in the buildings as well. He designed complete works of art uh, with furniture, with windows, glassware, tableware uh, for the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. I mean, many things. And so we uh, we thought it would be a wonderful thing, and there, you know, it makes a gorgeous entrance to our museum as well. Well, let's move on to the second piece. You've told me it's an exceptionally rare piece, and and one from Colorado. That's correct. Yes, 
It is, it's a lamp uh, which was made at the quite famous, really world famous uh, Van Briggle uh, Pottery Company and it's located in, was located in Colorado Springs. It was uh, founded about 1900 by artist Van Briggle and his wife Anne. Uh, she was a painter as well as designed uh, pottery. Uh, artist very tragically died uh, of tuberculosis in 1904 at the age of 35. And so he had a very short career, uh, but uh, his wife took over mm-hmm. very ably and continued to design pottery. They continued to do pressings of his own designs as well, but she left in 1912. And for that reason, you want the most uh, important examples of Van Briggle are before 1913, and they're dated generally. For a novice who does not know much about the, the Art Nouveau type of, of works, talk about what that means and, ah. and what that is. You have uh, beautiful uh, curling, sweeping forms in Art Nouveau. Uh, furniture will do that. The legs will turn and twist and they do kind of stylized uh, flowers as what you see in this Van Brickle vase are beautiful examples of flowers with their curving stems coming down on the vase itself. And then there's a, ta- a lampshade. Hugh, the third piece is quite different from the other two, but from a similar period. Uh, what can you tell us about the third piece? Right. We've done uh, Arts and Crafts, which is uh, starts uh, roughly in the 1860s and moves up to World War I. Uh, Art Nouveau is just after Arts and Crafts. But we're really going to move to Art Deco, which is 1920s and 30s. Uh, began in France, uh, but you get very geometric uh, things. And we have an example of one of the most important uh, Art Deco ceramics done in America. Uh, and it is a jazz bowl made as a punch bowl. And we all have an even more rare jazz plate. Uh, they were produced in 1931 by Victor Schreckengoss, a wonderful artist. And the jazz bowl is – it was made as a punch bowl. It was commissioned by Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh in 1930 for a New Year's Eve punch bowl when uh, FDR, her husband, was still governor of New York. Uh, and, and there are only about 30 jazz bowls known and only about 10 jazz plates, but this is the only one in a public collection. Now, what do these pieces look like? The, the jazz bowl is quite considerable, almost 14-inch diameter. That's large. And eight inches high, yeah. So get a lot of punch in that and have a lot of gas, <laughs> but I presumably they did it's in the governor's mansion in New York. So it's carved on the outside with these marvelous um, images. The, uh, it has words uh, carved in it. It has jazz, dance, follies. Uh, this was uh, depicting all the jazz rage in New York going on in the, in the 1920s and in the uh, great uh, days of the, of the flappers and, and things like that and the, and the jazz bands. You have images uh, on the side of cocktail glasses. You have gas lamps because electricity was still rather young in those days. Uh, New York skyscrapers because we're in New York and champagne bubbles and musical notes. I, you know, it's like what else is there, right? They were quite whimsical in a sense. It, it was wonderfully whimsical. It's there. Uh, there's this uh, just in- incredible um, Egyptian blue. Uh, both the plate and the bowl, and the um, but there's a green, a very vivid green also, uh, which they can come in. Uh, Schreckengoss was a, quite an interesting person. He was a uh, one of the most important American designers we've ever had, and so ceramics were actually a minor thing that he did. Although huh. he's the most the most famous thing he did was this, but he designed uh, industrial uh, child's toys, 
or and he designed bicycles for virtually every firm that existed in America. He did all the bicycle designs for Susan Roebuck. He did uh, uh, Montgomery Wards. I mean, and so this is how he actually made his money. Well, now that we have these three items, you personally chose out of the nearly 40,000 uh, uh, works. Why these? Uh, well, uh, first of all, I limited myself to what was on view. So we have 3,900 things on view. But that didn't make it easy because I have acquired, other than the Kirkland paintings, although they were left to me by uh, out of the Kirkland's estate, yeah, it, it was daunting uh, to choose. Uh, but I thought they were really important. One was, of course, Colorado. The Van Brickle was Colorado art. Uh, and to get something at Deco, we have a great Deco collection, and Arts and Crafts is the beginning of our collection, and Arts and Crafts is the big break with Victoria. And, and not to downplay Kirkland, but we, we must talk about him. We must talk about his works because that is the namesake of this museum. Right. He um, was the founding director of the University of Denver in 1929. Uh, and they're of the, the art school that's still uh, currently going. There was an old art school that kind of fell apart at one time, and so Kirkland was the, uh, but the founder of the present art school. He um, he brought Colorado a certain amount of recognition in uh, between 1997 to 2000. He was given 13 European uh, shows. Uh, Eleven were at the European museums uh, in ten countries, and so he has a certain uh, international regard as well. And he's uh, been shown in 18 states and 11 foreign countries. Uh, so he he had a wide-ranging career. He began, as most artists do, doing realism and uh -huh. then he does impressionism. Uh, but then he gets into abstraction and he does the uh, – he starts doing the paintings that you can see at uh, Betcher Concert Hall and at the L.A. Carkins Opera House. The very, very famous dot paintings, those are probably the most famous thing he did, making dots with wooden dowels uh, on uh, canvases that are laid flat on the table and manipulations of oil paint and water. And they're considered fictitious galaxies and fictitious nebulas. And so he invented his own um, cosmos in a way. Hugh Grant directs the Kirkland Museum of Fine and Decorative Art. It'll be open at its current location until May 1st. It will then reopen as a larger museum in Denver's Golden Triangle in 2017. See photos of the three pieces he chose at cprnews.org. Fat bikes and a ballpoint pen. Just a few of the things we'll touch on today during Loud and Clear, where we hear from you, our listeners. Lots of people join the conversation about the increase in fat bike use on Nordic ski trails. Fat bikes have oversized tires designed for the snow, sand, and the mud. Jim Simmons of Winter Park wrote on Facebook, The key to being good Nordic citizens is for fat bikes to set up their bikes properly. Leave a flat track is the way to know your bike is appropriate for the conditions. It's hard for cyclists to let their air out, but necessary to protect the trails and be more efficient while Nordic biking. And Marco Walker from Denver also pointed out on Facebook, I'm a self-admitted recreation snob. When mountain biking, I like my single track to remain single track. This is threatened by full-face helmet-wearing downhillers locking up their brakes around every corner and blazing new side trails. And when backcountry skiing, I like my tracks clean. I also worry about fat bikes being out on the trails during periods of thawing and destroying the trails by riding through the mud. Lynn Cush weighed in on our recent interview about the town of Silverton, Colorado, exploring a Superfund designation following last year's Gold King mine spill. She says the private entities that do mining and fracking reap the benefits of huge profits, and then they leave a wasteland for the citizens of the country to clean up. CPR's Listener Services Coordinator Linda Heider took a trip down memory lane during a recent interview about the golden age of Colorado radio. 95 KIMN, Denver. 
She writes, I'm a native, and I grew up near Sloan's Lake in West Denver. The KIMN radio station was less than a mile from my house. Many times my girlfriends and I would walk over to the station after school. The broadcast booth that the DJ was in was right inside the front door. We'd go in and watch him spin the records on the turntables, answer the phones to take requests, and he'd smile and wave at us. As young elementary school girls, that was so much fun. And finally, one listener took issue with a small piece of information Fisk Planetarium Director Doug Duncan shared during his talk about the discovery of Neptune last week. A theoretical astronomer named Urbain Le Verrier uh, did a lot of calculations by hand, and uh, he predicted that there must be another planet out beyond Uranus changing its orbit. So he sent letters to all the French astronomers, and all of them said, eh. Uh, you don't discover a planet with a ballpoint pen. The anonymous listener writes in an email, Unfortunately, while Neptune was discovered in 1846, the ballpoint pen was only invented 40-odd years later, in 1888, I believe. We check with Doug Duncan, and he agrees, saying, Astronomer Francois Argos said Urbain Le Verrier had discovered a planet, quote, with the point of his pen, but not a ballpoint pen. We welcome your feedback using a ballpoint pen if you so choose, but you can also email us by clicking contact at the top of cprnews.org or reach out to us on Facebook, that's CPR News, and Twitter, at Colorado Matters. And finally today, street performing or busking on the streets of New York was how Bonnie Carroll learned to play the dulcimer. When she relocated to Colorado, she found her enthusiasm for the stringed instrument was matched, but the opportunities to gather with other players, that was a bit lacking. Well, we dulcimer professionals, (laughs) or dulcimaniacs as we are fondly known as, travel all over the country and perform at dulcimer festivals and teach at dulcimer clubs. And uh, if you live in the uh, East, you can go to a dulcimer festival almost every single weekend. But um, there were no dulcimer festivals between Kansas City and San Francisco. So Steve Elberg, a player himself, started the Colorado Dulcimer Festival, and that was 12 years ago. The festival returns this Friday and Saturday in Littleton. It features evening concerts, workshops, jam sessions, and new this year, folk dance sessions. Carol says you'll hear two types of dulcimers this weekend, each very distinct. The mountain dulcimer, it sits in your lap and you play it sort of like a guitar. Then a hammered dulcimer has 60 to several hundred strings, and you play it with little hammers, and it's a much older instrument. Carol has taught and performed at the festival since the first year. Here she is on the hammer dulcimer with her song, The Stone's Story. player Bonnie Carroll with this stone story. She lives in Nederland and will perform during the 13th annual Colorado Dulcimer Festival. The event is Friday and Saturday in Littleton. You can hear the stone story in its entirety at cprnews.org.
And that's our show for today. Thanks to our audio engineers, Michael Hughes and Matt Hers. Our director for today was Michael DeYuana. Thanks to David Hill, our producer, as well as our executive managing producer, Rachel Estabrook. And our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Contact with us on Facebook at CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Public Radio from C- This is Colorado Matters, rather, from CPR News. Have a great day.